Do you, can you feel that the Lord's here in a powerful way already? Yeah, yeah I, I just had a sense, even in the worship, that this is going to be something that we're going to look back on and we're going to go, I'm really glad I made that commitment to be there. I mean, we always say thank you to people that, that you know, give up a, a Friday night and all of a Saturday to come and press into God's presence. But I just felt this is going to be a weekend where God is going to do more. You know, we're told that he will do more than we either ask or imagine. So I don't know how much you can ask for or imagine, but he promises more than that. And um, my, my sense is that he wants to massively expand our understanding of what it is to be his sons and daughters. And uh, it's just been something that's been on my heart for the last couple of years, really, that we, do, we just don't know who we are. And if we could get a glimpse again of, of who we are, then we, we would become something glorious. Uh, and our, our walk with the Lord would be something incredibly exciting and fulfilling. And in some ways, I think that's what it, you know, in Romans 8, it says that creation waits for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. I don't think that's a kind of end times eschatological when Jesus comes again thing. I think that's actually something that is all the time creation is waiting for us to come into the place that God designed for us to be in. And that is something that we're meant to be in a little way perhaps just anticipating now with fullness to come. But we're meant to be stepping into that already. Now for me that, that wasn't my upbringing. I was brought up in a, in a very kind of traditional sort of setting. Um, my parents went back to church having fallen away when I was born, which I'm sure was because they were overwhelmed with the joy of having me and wanted to go give thanks to the Lord, but it might have possibly been because they felt they needed some help. And, uh, and I was in one of those churches where it was all very traditional, very formal, and um, the closer you got to this end, the holier it got and the more clothes you needed to wear. So um, they had a wonderful plan for how you keep kids in the church, which was make them carry things. So from my earliest days, I, I carried a candle, then when I was a little bit bigger, I carried a cross and then carried a book. And that was the kind of way you graduated. And um, my faith actually during that season was very real. Uh, and it, through worshipping like that, I really came to an understanding of the God who made the heavens and, and the earth. You know, I knew the holiness of God from that. And everything about the way that that did church modeled this idea that, that God exists and he is to be worshipped, but he's high and he's lifted up. So, so that was my faith, really. It, it was real, didn't transform me, didn't make much difference to me on an everyday basis. If you'd asked me, are you a Christian? I would have said yes. If you'd looked for any evidence, you would have struggled to find any, other than the fact that for one hour a week, I went into the church. Um, what happened for me was I, I went to university and um, did the thing that I would do as a good Anglican, went to the college chapel, and uh, that's the local expression of Anglicanism, so I joined there. And then um, we had Freshers' Week, and during Freshers' Week, all the clubs and societies would um, advertise what they were about. And I remember seeing this little table that said Christian Union. Now, I have no idea that we had a union, so I thought, you know, well, I'm a Christian, I thought we'd better join it, just in case the strike action, you know. <laughs> solidarity with the brothers and sisters you know I might need to sort of you know stand with them at some point so I joined the Christian Union and discovered it wasn't about that at all it was actually about getting together to eat food and read the Bible um, well I certainly was up for eating food and I never read the Bible for myself although I'd heard it read in church quite a lot so I so I thought well actually I'm quite interested in that so so I went along I thought give it a go and I'd taken my confirmation Bible with me. So I went to these Bible studies. Now, I, you prob do you remember confirmation Bibles? Has anybody else given one? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, basically a confirmation Bible is a normal Bible, except all the pages are glued together by silver. <laughs> and um, it's a bit special. Uh, this actually has got a little bit of it left. But when you first use it, you have to peel the pages apart. So I went to these Bible studies, and very embarrassingly, I would be going, you know, hang on, hang on. And I'd be literally, I'd be peeling the pages apart. Um, but through studying the Bible, my faith suddenly came alive. And I'd heard the gospel, I'd heard the Bible read in church, you know, all 18 years of my life. But actually to read it for myself was the time when the penny dropped. And so I suddenly realized who Jesus was and what he'd done for me. And um, got incredibly excited about that. It all made sense. All these things that I'd been thinking about or experiencing or, or reading about um, suddenly fell into place. And um, I, I immediately got involved in evangelism. I was so excited about what I'd received. I wanted to share it with others. And um, so I did, you know, because for me, suddenly knowing that the God who made the heavens and the earth has come alongside us as a friend and brother and made himself knowable. You know, that actually we could know this God, we could know what he's like, we could be in relationship with him through what Jesus has done for us. That was so liberating, so exciting, I thought I can't keep this to myself, I've got to share it. Now the, the particular expression of sharing the faith I got involved with was overseas student evangelism. So I was a, a student at Cambridge and there were loads of language students around and so what we used to do once a week was we put on a tea party for them so they could come along and practice their English. <laughs> so they could be evangelized, basically. Um, but they would come along, and then halfway through the evening, we would say, oh, by the way, um, we're all Christians, and we're doing this partly because we want to show you God's love, but we'd love to share God's love with you as well. So if you'd like to practice your English in another way, you can come and read the Bible with us. And um, quite a few people did, actually. Uh, but nobody ever became a Christian, or hardly anybody. Um, over the, about a year or so. Um, and by this point, I'd graduated onto leading this team, so I felt a little bit responsible. And so I, I came into this season where I was, I was really praying that God would start doing something more in what we were doing. Because I, I knew that simply reading the Bible had utterly transformed my own life. And so clearly, it could happen to anybody. So if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. So, Lord, whatever you, whatever you need to do, Please, just come and do it. We, we're longing to see people come to faith. And um, I couldn't connect the, that prayer to, to the answer, which I believe it was the answer. But basically what happened for me was, at some point during my second year as a student, um, I just encountered the Spirit in a fresh way. I didn't know that's who he was. But I, I was laying myself down to sleep in my room. And um, in those days, I you know, wasn't a good evangelical, so I didn't have a proper quiet time in the morning. Um, I was like out of bed running down the road to get to lectures. But um, I often would, would read my Bible and then pray as I was going to sleep. And this particular week, and it happened four or five times over the course of a week, but as I lay myself down to sleep, the presence of God came into the room in a powerful way, in a way that I'd not experienced it before. In fact, the first time it happened, it was so strong, I kind of like sat out of bed because I was thinking there must be an angel come into the room or something. Sadly, I couldn't see him. But I just got filled with, with this sense of peace and of joy. Um, and I, I noticed um, that, that gradually the things that I was believing in my head began to trickle down into my heart. You know the difference, don't you? You know, you, you, you know the love of God, but actually to know the love of God for you 
to experience that, to, to feel it, to live in it, that's a, that's a completely different thing. And I'll say this happened several times over the course of a week. Nobody ever prayed for me to be filled with the Spirit. I had never met a charismatic person. Nobody had ever described this experience before. So I didn't tell anybody about it at all. But I did start to notice over the next few weeks that, that what I was reading in the Bible was coming alive for me in a fresh way. What I believed about God in my head was becoming an experienced, felt daily reality. And also, over the next season, as we carried on doing the Bible studies just as badly as we used to, suddenly people started coming to faith. And, and uh, it wasn't just me. I think other people around that time were having the same sort of experience, same sort of breakthrough. And suddenly there was a sense that, you know, there's so much more of God. So God is not just the God who makes the heavens and the earth, you know, the great, the awesome, the holy. Not even just the one who comes alongside as a friend and brother, but our God is a transforming fire. And he changes us from the inside out. And he wants to get hold of us because he wants to flow through us. And he wants us to surrender all that we have just as we were singing. But it's not so that we're giving him something. What we're doing is we're surrendering all that we have so that he can really use it. He can refine it and he can anoint it and he can increase it and multiply it. Whenever we give something to God, we get so much more back. And so my, my experience was that that journey for me happened in that kind of order, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But out of it, really, I, I discovered the two things that I think we all need to know. The, the first is who God really is. And of course, it's going to be a lifelong pursuit of us learning more and more about how wonderful he is, how amazing he is, you know, learning more about his character. But it's not just enough to learn who he is. We also have to learn who we are in him. And who, who has Jesus called us to be? What is it to be a disciple? What is it now to be in a relationship with this God? Because so, we're not just passive recipients of his love. That would be a kind of a consumer Christianity where, where we come into God's presence because we want to receive. But having received, what difference does it make? How does it flow out? Is it, and I've come to believe that it is, but is it that as we, as we go and we walk in the pouring out of the things that God has poured in, that actually we're going to grow in relationship with him? You know, my, my relationship with, with my father is, is good, but we don't have much in common. But the few things that we did get to do together, I loved. I loved doing things with my dad. You know, sometimes he didn't have the patience to involve me in the car mechanics or the putting up of the shelves. And so, you know, 40 plus years later, Becky is still quite annoyed about that, that I can't you know, do anything with a car, can't put up any shelves. I'm, you know, just loads of skills that I could have got from my dad. He didn't have the patience to pass over to me. But the things that we did do together, I loved it. And of course, actually, if I was doing something with him, I was probably slowing him down and making the job poorer than it would have been done if he'd done it himself on his own. And that, isn't that like our father? Why would our father call us into partnership with him? Why does he use us to extend the kingdom? Why does he anoint us to preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, to cast out demons? He can do that. It's because he loves us. And he wants us to grow in him. I mean, we often look at these things and we think, you know, all the equipping for ministry, yeah, we believe in that. And, and it sounds like it's a job, it's a duty, you know, you really ought to go and do this. I want to say to you, it's a joy, it's a privilege. This actually is the pathway to growing with God. 
for us to learn how to receive and operate in the things that he gives is about us becoming the people he called us to be and actually the people that go with that and say, yes, Lord, they get the privilege of being in partnership with God their Father and they get to know him better than anybody else. And that's, that's why, for me, this is, the, like, this is like the biggest joy of my life is saying yes to God and I'll, try and I'll give it a go. And I don't need to be very good. I just need to give it a go because actually I'm spending time with my father. Does that make sense? Now, I, I believe that, that there's a version of the gospel around that has been, that it essentially says um, you are a fallen rat bag saved by Jesus and which means you're going to go to heaven, but basically until you get there, you're always going to be a fallen rat bag and, and nothing's going to change at all. And that is a travesty of what the gospel actually says. The gospel is a far, far bigger picture than we realize. So let's go back to the beginning and let's ask ourselves what originally was it that God called us to as his sons and daughters? Well, if we go into the book of Genesis, which is a good place to start, isn't it? Um, I mean, you know these verses really well, but in, just in the last couple of years or so, I've been seeing them in a really, really different light. So we know the two creation accounts. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, Let's make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, etc. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and he gave them this. He blessed them and he said to them both, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over all the creatures. Now in the second account, it talks about how God did this, but he did it in a particular place. He put them in a garden. It says the Lord God took the man, he put him into the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Uh, and he gave him this command about how to do it. And then uh, he recognized that man was to do this in, in mutual relationship with woman who would be taken out of him, not so that she would rule over him or he rule over her, but they would be alongside each other to help each other. And they together get the Genesis 1 command of filling the earth and subduing it. Now, the big question really is, if there is an Eden, what is there outside Eden? The answer is not Eden. And the, the commission seems to be that Adam and Eve were put into this place where they would meet with God and their commission was to take what was there and to bring it out to the rest of the creation. Are you with me so far? Yeah, because this could rock your world and radically change your Sunday school theology. So let's, uh, uh, let's kind of stay with this for a little bit longer. Um, it's fairly clear that outside of Eden, things are not the same as they are inside of Eden. Firstly, when Adam and Eve get chucked out, they're told they can't go back and there's a little angel with a sword to stop them. Secondly, is when Cain gets thrown out of, uh, of Eden, he has to have a mark on his head. Do you remember why? So the nasty people outside won't kill him. Because the conditions outside are not the same as the conditions inside. So what is Eden? Well, Eden basically seems to be a bridgehead. It's the place where God is present. It's the place where God meets with his people, his image bearers. Now, throughout the rest of the Bible, that has a name. Temple. 
Eden is a temple, and if you're not convinced about that, one of the easiest ways to recognize it is to look at the temple and work out that it looks like Eden. So right in the middle of a temple, you have a massive tree. The, the great lampstand is clearly intended to be the tree of life. So if you, like, if you think about it, basically what's happening is God is putting Eden as a bridgehead of what he wants to bring into the earth, and it's meant to come out from there, taken by his image bearers, into the whole of creation. That's why there are all these active verbs of fill, subdue, rule. You know, that from the beginning, God created humanity to work with him to extend what he had done in Eden to cover the whole of creation. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? Okay, so if Eden is a temple, what's the last thing that you put into a temple? Now, remember, whatever the Bible means is what it meant to the first people who wrote it and read it. So put yourself back into the shoes of somebody in the ancient Near East a few millennia ago. You got a temple. You put an image in the temple. Does that change the way you think about being the image of God? So I think it might, because often when we say that we're created in the image and the likeness of God, what we often think of is, is we reflect. We reflect his character. So in, I'm in the image of God, and that means I'm creative. I don't know if you've ever seen the squirrels in your garden trying to get to the nuts. They're pretty creative as well sometimes. You know, but we, we look at all those aspects and we think, okay, my call is to reflect the character of God. But actually, there's another side of it. So the image is also about representing God. That God put us into the garden as his stewards. For us to rule upon the earth, who do we think we are? Well, the only reason we can rule upon the earth is actually the ruler is God himself, and he calls us to do it in his stead. That's called stewardship. And once you start to see that, the whole thing makes sense. You see the big picture of the Bible. You start to realize some of the things in the New Testament that just blow your mind. You'll go, oh, I see what that means now. So 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, do you not know? He just throws it out, by the way, in a discussion about something else. Do you not know that we'll judge angels? Like, us? You know, that's our destiny. Well, that was the original intention. And the original intention was that we would be raised up to, by God to be his stewards. So essentially, in, a, in an ancient temple, just imagine we're in a temple, you put an image in the temple. Now, the image does two things. The image is the focus of worship. It gathers together all the worship. But the image also somehow brings the presence of the God into that place. So for us, human beings, to be in the image and likeness of God and called to be the image of God and take God's presence, God's power out into creation, basically we do two things. We gather the worship of creation together and present it to God. That's called being a priest. But we also bring the presence and power of God. We're given his authority. We're called to be his stewards. We're called to extend his kingdom. That's the authority side of it. That's the royal aspect. It's not surprising then that when you read the New Testament, it starts to talk about what Jesus has done and who we are. Peter says, do you not know that you are a royal priesthood? In Revelation, it says he has made us to be a kingdom and priests. Kingdom, royal, priest. These two themes run through the whole Bible. 
The theme of being a priest is, is about relationship with God. It's about covenant. The theme of, of um, bringing, of stewardship, of bringing authority is, is the theme of kingdom. Covenant and kingdom are the two themes that run through the whole Bible. And that is what the Lord has restored for us in Jesus. Covenant and kingdom. So there is this rhythm that we find throughout the Bible that if we learn to walk in it, will enable us to become the people that God has called us to be. Because there's this intimacy with God. But there's also the going with God in authority. So the intimacy is the call of a priest. But the authority is the call of kings. And God is calling us to be his royal sons and daughters. And the truth is, as I go around, um, I find this in myself, but I find it to be true often in our country. We are much more comfortable with the intimacy than we are with the authority. You know? And, and often people, when, they, when people talk about church, they talk about the church as a sanctuary. Ever heard that word used for a church building? Sanctuary. Because what do you do? Well, you come into the church because in the church you're safe so that you can come and meet God and then the rest of the week you can go and survive the nasty world that you live in. Not meant to be that way. What you do is you come into this place. This is a bridgehead. You come into this place. In this place, you see God. You receive from God. And we go out and we change outside. It's not about surviving outside. It's actually about extending the kingdom from this place outside. So every time we come into this place, we're, we're refreshed in it. We're renewed in it. We, we rediscover our calling to represent God, to be his people, to be his stewards. And we go out with fresh power, fresh confidence to go and do these things. Now, as I say, that, that discovery of who I am in God has completely transformed my understanding of what it is to be a Christian. And it's rescued me, I think, from a Christianity that sometimes is, there must be more than this, because this is a bit dull. And there's been times when I've fallen into that. I imagine probably anybody who's been in church for a while will go, yeah, there must be more than this. Yeah, we used to sing that song over and over again, and it felt like God never answered it. And the reason there must be more than this is because we got it wrong. We haven't realized what it is. So for me, having had that experience of um, receiving from the Spirit and going off um, and uh, starting to sort of see some things shifting in ministry, I, I got so fulfilled doing that that I went forward for um, training as, a, as an ordinand at the tender age of 20, 21. And um, it's then that I came across people from New Wine. I'd never come across new wine. Um, I went to theological college in 1989, um, which was the first year of the summer conference. Um, met Becky in early 90. We didn't actually make it to the new wine summer conference till 96. But we were in those circles um, right along. And suddenly, just being with people who were sort of saying, you know, this stuff the Bible talks about, we can actually do it. Here's a model for it. You know, this is what it looks like to put it into practice. It suddenly brought the Bible to life for me. So I've just put, gathered some scriptures together which we put on the screen. When Jesus called the disciples, from the beginning, he sought to involve the disciples in the things that he was doing. I'd never thought about that. You know, I think I'd seen and understood that Jesus was doing signs and wonders and miracles as he went around preaching the gospel. 
But it never occurred to me that he actually, from the beginning, wanted them to be part of that. So in Mark 3, at the call of the disciples, it says Jesus went up on a mountainside. He called those he wanted and they came to him. And it says he called them that they might be with him. That's the intimacy. And that he might send them out to preach the kingdom of God and drive out demons. That's the authority. From the beginning, there was that rhythm of intimacy and authority. We come to Jesus and we enjoy his love and we go from Jesus and we take his power out and we do what he calls us to do. So that rhythm is in scripture right the way through. Adam and Eve were created on day six. What happens on day seven? Day off. Day eight, go to work. So there's a rhythm there as well. So they they start in rest and then they go off to work. Just out of interest, um, do you know when the Jewish day begins? Yeah, sundown. So the Sabbath begins when the sun goes down. So the, the Jewish conception of a day is that we start off by celebrating with each other and then going to sleep. Because God can run the world quite happily without us. So we start off in rest and celebration, which is Sabbath, and then we wake up and we go to work with God. So it's, it's biblically true to say we work from rest. Or as our culture says, we have to rest from work. We've got it completely the wrong way around because we're living under the curse, not the original intention of God. What does Jesus say about um, John 15 and the vine? He says, abide in me, and then you'll go and bear much fruit. You know, it's always what God does first, but it's always followed by an outpouring afterwards. It always starts in the intimacy, but it's got to flow out in the authority. So Jesus involves the disciples with him in that. And he goes off and he does the ministry of signs and wonders and he preaches the sick, uh, preaches the good news to the poor and he heals the sick and he casts out demons. And then he calls them to be with him. Now at the end of Matthew chapter nine, it says that uh, Jesus was um, just overwhelmed by the crowds. And you remember the passage, I'm sure if you've read the Bible, you perhaps remember this bit where it says that he looked out on the crowds and he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says in answer to that, the harvest is plentiful. Now I, I love that because you know, normally when I look at the needs of my community, I'm overwhelmed and I see it as a problem. The problem is great. But what Jesus does is he looks out and he sees a harvest. It's an opportunity. Because when people have come to the end of themselves and nothing's working, then they're positioned to discover the goodness and kindness of God. So Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. One problem. Problem is the workers are few. I would say at that point the workers were one. What Jesus says is we need to pray that God would send out more workers into the harvest field. Now I often say this, Jesus didn't realize he'd reached the end of chapter 9, so he just kept talking into chapter 10. Um, Because we put a chapter division in there, we read chapter 10 as if it's different from what was going on before. But immediately after Jesus has said, we need to pray that God would send workers out into his harvest field, the very next thing that's written is Jesus called them to him and he gave them power and authority. And as he sent them out, he said to them, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of God has come near to you. That's his message, basically, what he was preaching. Go and you preach it as well. And as you go, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead, freely give, because you have freely received. See, that's the commission. 
Now, occasionally, and certainly in the circles I grew up in, um, people say, well, that's just the first apostles. They were special. You know, we named churches after them. You know, St. Peter and, you know, St. Andrew. And, you know. Well, actually, Jesus does the same thing in Luke chapter 10, but he does it with 70 people that time. He called them to him and he says, heal the sick who are there. You go out on mission. Find the places that are receptive. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. And when they come back, they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they were clearly casting out demons as well. Preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons. And what Jesus says is really interesting because I've come to believe it's a slightly different interpretation from the one that most people have. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And most people go, wow, Jesus is really old. He must have been there in the beginning. Which it could mean that. It could be that. It could be Jesus saying, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't think it is that at all. I think when they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. I think Jesus is saying, yeah, and I, I, that's what dethrones Satan. What dethrones Satan is the sons and daughters of God realizing who they are, rising up into that and going off and doing it. And that's when Satan's kingdom falls. And that's why he says to us afterwards, you know, but don't, don't, don't rejoice in the works, just rejoice in the fact that your names are written in the book of life. But what blesses the heart of God is when we rise up and we become the people that we're meant to be. And we get this vision for a Christianity that isn't scraping into heaven, but is, yeah, I'm, I'm not what I was. I'm not what I should be. I'm in process. But actually, God thinks that you're far more wonderful than you do. It's one of those, if I was an American preacher, I'd say, turn to the person sitting next to you, say, you're more wonderful than you think you are. <laughs> Have a go. I know, it's really difficult, isn't it? I know, we're English. We're, yeah. Okay. We, some of you husbands and wives are really struggling with that. Sorry. <laughs> There'll be ministry later. Don't worry, it's a big value of ours. We always do ministry. So... If we could know who we are. So I want to share some verses with you from uh, Galatians. They're very famous. Galatians chapter 3 towards the end. Um, But I I want to challenge you because I think so often we fall into a non-biblical expectation of ourselves. And part of what this weekend is, is yeah, it's a time to encounter God, but it's also a time to reset our expectation. And because he can do more than we can either ask or imagine, that expectation level is always going to go up. I, can, I often say to people, you know when Jesus is talking about prayer and asking God for stuff, try and find me a passage where Jesus says, oh, easy boys, rein it in. There aren't any, are there? <laughs> there, there are no expect, you know, Jesus is always saying, God is way better than you think he is. Big, you know, bigger expectation, ask him for anything. Do you not realize how great and amazing God is? how quick he is to answer, how much he wants to bless you. So let's, let's let Scripture raise our expectation again and get a glimpse of who we are. So towards the end of um, Galatians chapter 3, in verse 26, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So your faith in Jesus has brought you into Christ Jesus, and in that we are all children of God through faith, and and all of us have been baptized into Christ, we have clothed ourselves with Christ, 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you know that actually there is still male and female? And some people are in slavery and some people are not, and we all have different racial backgrounds. So what he's saying is, he's not saying that these things don't exist. What he's saying is they don't matter. So you are all equally one in Christ. You are all equally able to access the riches of heaven. You are all equally the beneficiaries and objects of his favor, his blessing, and all the resources of heaven are available to you, whether you're one of the chosen people or one of the Johnny-come-lately, whether you're male or female, or whatever your socioeconomic status in life, it's all for you because you're all one in Christ Jesus, equally sons and daughters of a living God. You know, sometimes people say God has no favorites, but if he does, you're it. You know, every single one of us, no first class and second class Christians, we're all first class. But then what he goes on to say is, Something fundamental has happened which has changed. Now, a lot of us probably are comfortable with the language around being children of God. You know, it it makes sense to us because we're very familiar with the intimacy bit of the intimacy authority spectrum. Um, And perhaps that might have been part of your conversion to discover that you have a relationship with God, that you, you, you can press into his presence and enjoy it and you love it. So we're fairly comfortable with being children of God. We sing the songs that express that. And we should, because it's the thing that the enemy will constantly want to challenge. He will always want to challenge that, because if we really knew who we were and how good a father is, then we would be potentially released. But it's not just we are sons and daughters of God. So he goes on in chapter four. Now this is quite a difficult passage, and I think for that reason it's often overlooked. But I think this is an incredibly liberating passage if we get our heads around it. The Apostle Paul says, what I am saying is that, in other words, he's trying to get something across to us. What I am saying is that, this is a reference back to what he's just said to us, what he's really trying to mean by there being no Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. What I am saying that is that as long as an heir is under age, He's no different from a slave, even though he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So what he's saying to us is, is, okay, you're sons and daughters of God, and that makes you heirs. This is part of the authority piece. If If we can get our heads around this, this is going to completely transform the way we see everything. So by revelation, by your discipleship, I would hope most of us here probably are reasonably comfortable with the idea that, yep, I am a child of God, okay? Most Christians probably in this country have come to that realization. I am actually, I'm a child of God. Okay, so you're a son of the living God. So if you're a son of the King of Kings, what does that make you? If you're a daughter of the King of Kings, what does that make you? So we are sons and daughters, but we are also princes and princesses. So we are royal because he is royal. That means that we are, yes, we're children of God, but we are also heirs of the king. 
And all of his stuff is our stuff by right. Now, a lot of people go, oh, that's amazing, you know. And, and for me, that was a massive breakthrough, particularly in areas that I don't find easy, don't enjoy, like deliverance, it, to actually, you know, start engaging in deliverance with that sense of, hang on, uh, you know, I'm, this is not just me, Paul from Harlow, who went to a comprehensive school. This is, I, I'm, the, I'm a son of the King of Kings. It's, I, I'm Prince Paul, you know. <laughs> I am Prince Paul. You cannot stand against the name of Jesus. I have the right to carry his authority. You know, that totally changes the way you pray, by the way. That, that was like a revelation. And, and I, I believe that the reason we have these quiet times is, is so that we get, God reveals to us again who we really are. And he, and he gives us the ability to go out from that place going, I'm confident in who I am now. Yeah, he's spoken to me again this morning. I know who I am. I've been reminded. So I can go out, I can do this stuff because God's told me. This is who I am. But look what he says in verse 3. Well, verse 2, let's back up for a bit. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So it's an obvious picture. Um, in those days, in a rich household, you would have the children would be looked after by a tutor who would be a slave, but the tutor would be in charge of them. So although potentially everything belongs to them, in practice it doesn't because they're under age. They're under the authority of the tutor. Now, in context, he's saying that this is the way the law functions, but what I really want to tell you is that the time has changed. We're not there anymore. So can I just like, throw a little question out to you? When you think of yourself as being a child of God, how old are you? Interesting thought, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know, I am a child of God. How old are you? I'm a child of my father, still. It's been a long time since he picked me up. <laughs> I think the danger is that often when we talk about being a child of God, well, I'm, I'm fairly confident none of you are actually saying, I am a baby of God. Possibly. I mean, there might be a few of you saying, I am a toddler of God. I think mentally most of us think I'm sort of like an eight-year-old of God, maybe, six-year-old of God, I'm not quite sure. But what it is, is that, that kind of concept, that image, speaks to us of the intimacy. Because we sing, you know, I am a child of God, and we immediately connect that to intimacy, to enjoying his love, and so we think of God carrying us, which means we must be little because he's big, and therefore we're probably little children of God. Is that right? Yeah, okay, so possibly some of you think, no, I think I might be a, a teenager of God because I'm always kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'm rebelling all the time and I, you know. <laughs> I just want to suggest that what Paul says in this passage is that we are not babies of God. We are not toddlers of God. We are not preteens of God. We're not teenagers of God. We are grown up kids of God. And this really changes the way that we read this stuff. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In other words, you have to come to a time when you are treated as an adult. So also, when we were under age, spot the tense, past tense, when we were under age, we were also in slavery under the elementary spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, 
In other words, it has happened. God sent Jesus to redeem us that we might receive the adoption to sonship. So we have been adopted as his sons and daughters. The, the, the phrase that Paul uses there is, it would have been very familiar to um, his first hearers. It was a phrase about, um, literally it's uh, translated as son placement. The idea is that you would place your son, put them alongside and you say, this is my son. Now, um, for us, adoption is something that is normally done with little children, right? I mean, adoption is a beautiful concept. There's a fantastic video Chris Cantile has done for Thy Kingdom Come. If you haven't seen it, go, go check that out. It's a brilliant video. Uh, and Chris has written, write, uh, just written a book on the theology of adoption because it's such a beautiful, powerful New Testament image. Now, the, the beautiful thing about adoption is that it's a choice, right? Isn't that great? It's a choice. So we're adopted, which means God has chosen us. Adoption is never an accident. You know, nobody ever wakes up in the morning and goes, oh no, I've got another one. You, know, you, you consciously set your choice upon someone and then they're brought into your family. But see, what we don't realize is that in the ancient Roman world, you didn't adopt children because the chances of them surviving were pretty low. You adopted adults because you wanted to be sure that you had an heir who was actually going to survive. So the, the Roman um, emperors would regularly adopt their favorite general and make them their son. And then so suddenly, you know, history would be written, rewritten. This person has always been my son and uh, everything I have is theirs. Now, this kind of was seen as being a coming-of-age kind of ceremony as well. Now, the Jews had a coming-of-age ceremony, still do. Bar mitzvah for the boys, bat mitzvah for the girls. And basically, what happens is it's a coming-of-age ceremony. But the point is, it's not just about growing up. It's about now acting as an adult. So when a boy is bar mitzvahed, what happens is the boy is now going to be treated as an equal in the family business. And he's going to be trained to and authorized to run the family business. It's about, it's about trust. A girl would be the equivalent at her bat mitzvah. She would be brought up and she would then be trained and authorized to run the household. That was the way they divided things in those days. Boys got the business, the girls got the estate. And they'd run those two things separately. Some of the rabbis suggest that um, what would happen at a bat mitzvah would be the religious bit in the temple, but then the father would march the son down to the gate and he would present the son to the elders and he would say, this is my son whom I love, and I'm well pleased with this one. Sound familiar? Jesus' baptism. See, the point is that what, what the father's doing is not just saying this is a relationship that I have, but it's also this is a responsibility I trust you with. How old are you? See, God does, God's not looking for toddlers of God. He doesn't want his sons and daughters to be preteens. He's looking for sons and daughters who are going to go, I know that I am called into the family business. I'm going to be about the father's business. I want to rise up. I'm not content just with the intimacy, but I also want to flow with the authority. Because that's what I was designed for. That's what I was created for. Royal priesthood. Authority, intimacy, kingdom, covenant. You know, he wants us to carry these things. Now, I, I was... Um, preaching in our own church recently and I just, I just felt that I'd share this tonight actually because so often we disqualify ourselves from what I've just said. 
So what I'm saying to you is you are as equally trusted as anyone on this planet has ever been by God. God is as excited about your potential and power as anyone he has ever created. Um, 1 John 4 says, in this world we are like Jesus. I'm not. From the Father's perspective, I could be. He's saying, we have this incredible calling. God believes in us far more than we believe in ourselves. That's why he says, with God, anything is possible. Nothing will be impossible. But he wants to do it with us. Which means that through us, with God, nothing is impossible. I can do all things that God calls me to through Christ who strengthens me. It just blows my mind. But most of the time, I find a reason why I can't. And I was um, sharing with our team about um, that passage with um, blind Bartimaeus. Uh, and it's, it's Mark chapter 10. But I, I realized when I was preparing for it that, that most of us, as we, as we think about the essence of sin, what we think of is that sin is self-assertion, pride. You probably even said this. Some of us, if we've you know, spoken on Alpha courses, we probably at some point said, sin is a little word with I in the middle. It's the sort of thing you have to say when you're doing Alpha courses. But what we're basically saying is sin is prideful arrogance establishing our own kingdom. And, and that is sin, don't get me wrong. But actually, it's equally sinful to choose to live under a lie when it's been exposed. It's equally sinful to be passive. It's equally sin- sinful just to pull back and let everybody else get on with it and count yourself out. Sin is failing to reflect the image of God, either by trying to make a name for yourself or by not letting the name that God has given you be a name that you live up to. And so what happens is um, this great passage with Bartimaeus um, says that uh, Jesus came to Jericho and the disciples, he was leaving with them. And then Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard it was Jesus, he began to shout, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it says, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And it just occurred to me that, you know, what's going on there is such a fantastic image of what faith should be. So, for most of us, we're not convinced that Jesus is really interested in us. We don't think we're important enough to matter. But the truth is, Jesus is for every one of us. Everyone. You know, Jesus is on his way to do something really important. Actually, at the end of this passage, they go straight into the triumphal entry, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is a big deal. You know, lots of reasons why we think, I'm not important enough, you know, the grand scheme of things. Probably lots of us think that, you know, my issues don't matter to God. God's got plenty bigger things in the world to concern himself with than me. Um, I love what Bill Johnson says. You know, we often say God wouldn't be interested in that. There's plenty more important things. But the way a parent thinks is if it matters to you, it matters to me. So when your child comes running to you and they've skinned their knee and you don't go, look, there's some people in the world are starving and others have got cancer. You know, no, no, you're just like you gather your child up and you go, oh, you know. God says if it matters to you, it matters to me. So everyone matters. The other thing is, um, sometimes we think, I've missed my chance. You know, m- maybe there was a time when God was doing it, but it's not now. 
It's because it says in this passage that Jesus was leaving Jericho. In other words, ministry time is over. He's on to the next thing. And I love the fact that Bartimaeus goes, I, I believe that Jesus will stop what he's doing and take attention, pay attention to me. Another thing is that sometimes uh, we think that we don't matter because life has told us we don't. This is blind Bartimaeus. We don't even know his real name. All we know is the son of Timaeus. Blind Bartimaeus, he's sitting by the roadside. You know, just before this, James and John are arguing for places, thrones on the left and the right, but he's sitting by the roadside. He's never going to be thinking about places of honor. He's begging. Everything about his life circumstances is saying to him, you're under curse. You know, you're under judgment. You're not somebody that God looks on with favor. And sometimes, you know, we look at our own circumstances and we think because of what's happened or where I've come from or we just find ways of ruling ourselves out. And even more pernicious than that, it says in the passage that as he started to cry out to Jesus, many rebuked him, told him to shut up. You know, and some of you here, you'll be very aware of that. You'll, you'll be aware of how your voice has been stifled. I was really conscious when I um, preached this to our church that um, I am a uni universally educated white male leader. It's, you know, I was brought up by quite an indulgent mother who thought that pretty much everything I said was wonderful. Um, so ever since, I've kind of opened my mouth and I've felt that whatever I thought was you know, to be shared with everybody. I can be in, you know, circles where everybody's an expert and I haven't got a clue, but I still think that my opinion is quite good. And um, I'm very free to share it, as my wife will tell you. Um, I was just brought up that way. But I know some people, by, by their background, by their ethnicity, by their gender, by their circumstances, have had to fight to get their voices heard. Far more than I've had to. But even so, I, I know there have been times when people have tried to shut me down and shush me and told me it's not my place and try to undermine the work of God and what he's calling me to. Bartimaeus, he's not bothered. He believes that Jesus is for everyone at any time. Whatever your circumstances tell you, whatever the people around you tell you, he calls out to Jesus and there's this beautiful thing where Jesus says, call him. And the people around Bartimaeus, I get this idea that, that, that you know, Bartimaeus is shouting so much that he can't actually hear Jesus calling for him. And he needs the people around him to go, come on, he's calling for you. He's calling for you. Be encouraged. Take heart. He's calling for you. And maybe that's my role today. That my role is to say to you, take heart. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling you. And he's calling you to be a glorious one. He's calling you to shine. He's calling you to carry his authority. Yeah, he wants to gather you into his arms so you know intimacy, but he wants you to walk out there with your head high as a prince or a princess. He wants you to walk in authority and go and do the stuff because God's with you. So don't rule yourself up. Oh, I'm, some of you, you'll be thinking, I'm not sure I'm there yet. But that's what this weekend's about. This weekend, I think, is, is about spending time together in the presence of God that he can rewrite the things that are over our hearts. Um, and we're going to spend a lot of time in ministry, but um, I think you know, every opportunity we have, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come because it's got to be from revelation that it comes. But we've got to say yes to it as well. You know, we've got to say, yes, Lord, I, I'm prepared. 
I'm actually going to ask you not just to surrender the usual things you think about, but I'm asking you, with all to Jesus I surrender, to surrender some of the images you have of yourself, to surrender some of the theology that you might have been brought up with, to surrender some of the, the um, even your view of God. Because whoever you conceive him to be, he is greater, more wonderful than that. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't we stand? We have a phrase in New Wine. It doesn't work unless you stand up, if you're able. But it certainly doesn't work unless you hold out your hands as if you're going to receive a gift. So this is what we'd love to do. Now, I'm so excited about... um, being here with you. This is, I know this is a great church. I know lots of you come from other churches as well. Um, but I, know, I think none of us are here by accident. I think God's got something really special he wants to do. Holy Spirit, we welcome you again. We know that you're always present, but we welcome a greater experience, a greater awareness more of you, Lord. And let our hearts say yes. Lord, we lay down any expectations we might have and we give you your way. We even lay down any reservations we might have and we ask for your will. And I ask, Lord, before we move on to other things through this weekend, I ask, I ask Lord, that by the Spirit of God, you would reveal to us any way in which we have disqualified ourselves from that high calling, the royal priesthood, the kingdom of priests. Now, simply in the stillness, Lord, we ask you just to bring to our hearts and minds, perhaps in the form of words or an image or a memory, anything that stands between us growing in what you have for us. For some, it might be, I can't because I'm not, or even I can't because I am. For some of us, it'll be, I can't because I did. And the Lord wants to lead you back to the cross to set you free. Maybe even for some, it would be, I can't because it was done to me. And the Lord wants to gather you in his arms and heal you. If you find yourself saying, I can't because I don't want to, or I won't. And the Lord knows the secrets of our hearts. And again, he'd just be saying to us, just surrender it again. You know, we, we keep on saying yes to the Lord at a deeper level of surrender and sacrifice, don't we? The Lord, we give you permission to rewrite the deep inner beliefs of our hearts and minds. 
We pray for revelation of who we are in the Spirit. Who we are in Christ. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would meet us in this. So I pray, Lord, that you would release a fresh sense of power and authority to your royal sons and daughters. Let it come now. Fall on us now, Lord. We just receive this by faith. We say yes to what you say. Now we love to bless what God is doing. In a sense, we all get to be like the people around Bartimaeus and say, yes, it's you, it is you. Believe it, he is calling you. Cheer up, take heart. It's you. And we do that in praying for each other. And there's nothing holier about the front. It's just logistically useful. But I sense that I can see the Spirit of God resting on loads of you. But others, I may not be able to see it, but you'll know something. Something's happening. It may just be that, that what, what's happening is that you're finding an, in, a, an intense desire for it to be happening. Well, that comes from God. It's not from the enemy, and it's not from you. And our God, if he stirs something up, it's because he wants to meet at he wants to answer that. So let's make the most of, of our time together. If, if you sense any of those things, why don't you come now, come at the front, just so we can minister to each other more easily. So just come out from where you are, and we'll gather across the front.